We're in a series now in 1 Corinthians called Body Building. Building up the body of Christ, not just physically, because, you know, we have this graphic that talks about going, that shows going to a fitness center or gym and hitting the weights uh, and building yourself up physically. And actually, the Bible says, you know, physical activity is of some good value, but it's not as good as growing up and maturing and developing your spiritual muscles. So um, spiritual bodybuilding is building up as a believer and then also building up as a gathering of believers together in this local congregation, this local assembly we call Sebastopol Christian Church. Now, I want to show you a graphic of two of what I think are some of the biggest bodybuilders in the history of the world. Can we get to the next one? Yeah. Four foot ten. Two great spiritual bodybuilders. Let me tell you who those are. You can pick any of the saints of old and you'd probably be pretty close. I, but if you knew that he was maybe holding a, a clover in his hand, you might be able to guess who that saint is on the right-hand side. These are two great spiritual bodybuilders. One of them is Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who's had an amazing impact on uh, followers of Jesus and even on non-believers in the 20th century. Uh, the saddest part about her death was she died during the same week as Princess Diana, and all the attention went over to Princess Diana and didn't really properly honor the life of uh, Mother Teresa. One of the things I remember of her bold as a lion was she was invited to speak in Washington, D.C., and she spoke strongly against abortion, against taking uh, human life in the womb, and right in front of President Bill and Hillary Clinton, and I just thought, that's... That's courage. That's bravery. So I admired her for years, Mother Teresa. The gentleman on the right, his name is Patrick, St. Patrick of Ireland. They say that when Patrick landed on Ireland, landed on the shores of Ireland as an adult, as a missionary, there was hardly any Christ followers on the island of Ireland. And when he died some 30-some years later, there were hardly any pagans left on the island of Ireland. So just an example, when, I, when I'm talking about spiritual bodybuilding or bodybuilding in, in the church, this is the kind of bodybuilders that I hope you and I develop into, not Arnold Schwarzenegger or somebody else like that. All right, um, let me get to this. Uh, Paul is going to continue uh, his letter, and we're going to get to chapter four, and Paul's going to talk about what it takes to be a leader in the church. In the Christian church, if you want to be a leader in the church, you're going to have to follow certain rules. Following Jesus, yes, but doing things God's way, the way that God instructs us, us to do. And Paul has been defending himself. Uh, he feels undervalued by these Corinthian believers. He feels like you guys are kind of taking me for granted. You, you don't realize how Christ-like I've been. You don't realize the sacrifices I've made to help you become followers of Jesus, to help you grow in your faith. And so he, he reminds him, and he says, yeah, yes, we're apostles. Yes, we've been given great authority by the Lord Jesus himself to proclaim the good news message. But I also need to remind you that as, as great a leaders as we are, as, as gifted apostles as we are, we are still, bottom line, we are just servants. And so he says in verses 1 and 2, he says, so look at Apollos, look at me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who's put in charge as a manager must be faithful. Very interesting that in the first century, there were lots of owners 
uh, and the owners of properties and households and estates, very few of them wanted to do the day-to-day operations on that estate. Yes, they loved the income that came from that estate, but they didn't want to do the, the work. And so often they would hire managers. They would hire stewards, what, was, what it used to be called. And some of your translations that you're reading, may, it may say steward. A steward is a manager. A steward is not an owner. A manager doesn't own the property, doesn't own the kingdom. Paul's, Paul's saying when he calls himself a manager, I don't own Jesus. I don't own the kingdom of God. That's his. He's, Jesus is the owner, but he's entrusted with me a charge to be a manager of his household, so to speak, the household of faith. And he wants me to be faithful to extend that household of faith. So a good servant of Christ does whatever a manager, what, it, what his master tells him to do. God entrusted Paul of explaining the mystery of the gospel. Paul received this revelation from Jesus Christ himself, and it's Paul's job to make sure that all the believers understand clearly what the message is. And so Paul keeps teaching them and he keeps praying for them. Sometimes he's rebuking them when they get off track. But above all, he's also modeling for them. He's exemplifying with his own life what it means to be a Christ follower. And that's when Paul's being a faithful manager. When it says, look at what it says, those who've been put in charge as a manager must be faithful. When Paul is willing to endure persecution and suffering and to go without for the sake of the saints, for the sake of these believers in Corinth or Ephesus or wherever else Paul went, Paul was being faithful as a manager. He was modeling the message that he wants us all to live. Has to be about the best words that you could say about anybody, by the way. Even, even in our own, our own culture, I think we respect that. When, when we say somebody was faithful, when somebody gets to their golden... A wedding anniversary of 50 years, and it says that was uh, he and he or she was a faithful wife or a faithful husband. There's that's saying a lot of good about them that they had opportunities not to be faithful and they rejected that, they stayed the course. And Paul says it's, it's incumbent upon somebody who's been given that trust by God that they be faithful. You and I are faithful servants to Christ when you're more concerned about service to Him rather than just status in his church or in his kingdom. When you're more concerned about service to Christ than status uh, with other people, then that's when we are fulfilling and that's when we are being faithful to what God has entrusted to each of us. So Paul goes on to say, jump down to verse five, he says, so don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time. In other words, Paul's saying, uh, God's going to judge me. I am going to face judgment. We talked about this last week, about this judgment seat of Christ, about us coming before the Lord Jesus at the end of our lives. And it's not just that we're going to be judged for salvation, but we're going to be judged for how we live the Christian life and the things that we invested in. And remember, we talked about, hey, on one side of the ledger, there's things that really please God with our lives. There's gold and silver and jewels. On the other side, there's wood and hay and stubble or straw. That stuff's gonna burn up because that wasn't pleasing to God. That was done with the wrong motives or we just didn't do the right activities in the first place. We're going to face a judgment for that. And Paul's talking about the judgment that he's gonna be facing before Christ but he says, he says, I'm not going to judge, judge myself. I'm not going to have you guys judge me because my judge isn't you. My judge is the Lord himself. 
And so he's telling them now, so what about you guys when you're looking at me as, as this apostle, as this leader? He says, so don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For, and, get, and, and this is a, another reality of God's judgment in our lives. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. That's what I was talking about last week when I said some people look like they're doing so well, but their hearts are not in the right place. They're doing it for the wrong motives. They're doing it for the status in their, in their organization rather than out of service to Christ. And sometimes those dark secrets, they're going to come to light in the light of God's judgment and His holiness, and He's going to reveal our private motives. And then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. When Jesus comes back, he says he'll bring our darkest secrets to light. Friends, it's good, and this is why I say, it's good to be completely open and honest with God now. And there's a number of reasons for that. Be open and honest with God now. Why? Well, first of all, you can't hide anything from God in the first place. You know, you can go and do something in the corner and you think nobody saw you, nobody knows what you'd said, nobody knows what you did. Uh, maybe you did something, but you did it with the wrong motives and you think nobody knew. I just look like St. Stephen out there in front of everybody and they're watching this going, oh, he's so wonderful. And, and you know in your heart you didn't do it for the right reasons. God knows everything about you. He knows everything that you do and he knows why you do it. The bad news is God knows everything about you. The good news is, and he loves you anyway, right? So he is, he's willing, and this is the beauty of it. This is why God says, let's keep clean slates with the Lord. Let's don't wait until the judgment when God brings all our darkest secrets to light. I'd rather bring my darkest secrets to light to God today and confess my sins to him because his promise is when we confess, if we confess our sins to him, God is faithful, he's just, he will forgive us our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can walk away with a clean slate. I hope every time you come to church, you have that feeling. I'm walking away with a clean slate. I am in a right relationship with God because I've confessed my sins before him. And he, according to his promise, has completely forgiven me. We don't have to take that shame or guilt or anything like that with us out the door. We can walk away free for the rest of our lives. God will give each one whatever praise is due. And so Paul's uh, trying to get the Corinthians to understand. You say, you, you, say I, you don't seem to respect me much as a leader. You don't really understand what I've gone through to help you get to where you are now in your faith. And so Paul uh, spends this other portion of chapter four um, it's sort of explaining to them sarcastically the difference between them and him. And I did say sarcastically. I think Paul uses a great deal of sarcasm in the middle of this chapter four because uh, Paul is setting them straight. And sometimes sarcasm will stop somebody in their tracks. Sometimes it will get their attention where another way may not get their attention. You know, and I used to think this, maybe you did too. You say, oh, sarcasm. Sarcasm is so dark. Sarcasm is, is so uh, low a form of communication. I don't think Jesus would use sarcasm. I don't think the Apostle Paul would lower himself to use sarcasm. There's a whole, there's half a chapter right here full of sarcasm. 
where Paul's talking about, you know, you say, you say you're so rich, I wish you really were rich so that we could be rich alongside of you. And he, and he, and he, and he says, you say you have everything, you say you're so knowledgeable, you're all this, and, and the reality is they weren't any of those things. So Paul was using sarcasm to get their attention and to say, stop, guys, because you need to pay attention to this. Look uh, what he says beginning in verse 10. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. You see that? The, the reality is that it's really the other way around. The ones who are strong is Paul and his companions on the missionary team. The one who is wise is the one who walks in the fear of the Lord. The one who boasts only boasts in the Lord, that would be Paul. So he's the one who's really the one who's wise and strong, the one who's not a fool. The Corinthians are acting foolish, but they think they're so smart. So Paul's just using sarcasm to straighten them out. And he says, even now we grow hungry. And Paul's getting Paul's going to get serious now, and he says, you really want to know what it's like to be an apostle in the first century trying to spread the kingdom of God? You think everybody just walks around, you know, saying, we're not worthy to be in your presence. We're so glad to have you with us. Here, let me make a, a room in my home for you. You think it's really like that? Even now, we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We're often beaten, and we have no home. We work wearily with our hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us, just like Jesus said to do. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. And yet we are treated like the world's garbage. We're treated like everybody's trash right up to the present moment. You know, when you, you start to hear the heartbeat of this man of God, and you start to say, you don't know what it's like to be a Christian leader in a, in a Roman world where the gospel looks like nonsense to Greeks. It's a stumbling blocks to Jews. Nobody wants to really hear what we have to say. We're often rejected. We're run out of town. We have no home. We're, we're flying by the seat of our pants half the time. And yet you Corinthians... You're withholding your love from us. You're withholding your respect. Please don't do that anymore. I think is what's being written between the lines. Rather than being honored of Paul's sacrificial living in order to bless them, these childish Christians, they're criticizing Paul thinking they knew better than he did. Paul didn't fight back. I, I just, you know, he could use sarcasm, but I want you to know, Paul didn't fight back. He took it humbly. This is where I want to transition into what it means to be a good father, what it means and how to be a great dad. Because here's Paul acting like their spiritual father. Look what he's willing to endure for the sake of their well-being, for the sake of their growth. Look what he's willing to do without. Paul knew how to go without. He knew how to sacrifice himself for the good of those he loved. Many times his enemies beat Paul. And Paul's attitude is, well, if he had to suffer personally just so these believers could be blessed, so they could grow in their faith, then he was willing to endure it. Wow. I mean, that is an incredibly mature Christian attitude. And in today's world, folks, that is incredibly rare. Incredibly rare. Now, here comes the part where Paul reminds them of their beginnings, where he says, I, I want to remind you, do you remember where you got your start in this Christian life? 
You want to know where it all began? Verse 14, he says, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you only have one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. Do you remember where it all began? It began when I first landed on the shores of Corinth. I was in fear. I was timid. I was weak. My knees were trembling. And yet the Holy Spirit was with me. And all I wanted to talk about was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And because of that willingness to speak the truth and love to you, you guys became believers. You became followers of Christ. That's where it began. And so Paul says he became their father in Christ Jesus uh, during those early days of the church. He reminded them of their beginnings. And now Paul says in verse 16, so I urge you, found this graphic on somewhere on the internet where all great things can be found. Um, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Just, it's a very short verse, but it's very powerful because Paul's saying, and Paul doesn't say that this isn't the only time in Corinthians where Paul says this. Later on, it says there, for I urge you to follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Who's willing to say that in today's world? Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Fathers, how many of us? I mean, that's a pretty high bar. I urge you to imitate me. When you see my life, whatever you see me doing, whatever you see me speaking and saying, the values that I show in my life, what, I, what you see what's important from the way I live my life, I want you to imitate that lifestyle. That's a pretty high bar to set. And I don't know how many fathers who would have the courage to say that to their own children. I urge you to imitate me. And Paul said it repeatedly. I want to show you another graphic. Tony Evans is a great pastor in Dallas, Texas. In fact, he's a great father. One of Tony Evans's kids who be, has become a great uh, preacher speaker in her own right is Priscilla Shirer. And Tony Evans, her father, said this. He talks about a kingdom man. That's one of the series he's been writing on lately. He says, a kingdom man is the kind of man that when his feet hit the floor each morning, the devil says, oh, crap, he's up. (laughs) That's the kind of man that we want to be. That's the kind of father that we could be to say, therefore, imitate. I urge you to imitate me. We can learn a valuable lesson from Paul's life here. If we want our children to develop godly habits, if we want them to follow Christ as we do, we need to imitate those same godly habits that the Lord does and then have the courage to say to our kids, watch me, watch me and let me show you how to do this. You know, when our kids were younger, it was so cool to have our kids say this to us. One of the greatest things I loved as a father uh, with children growing up in the house was when, of the, when one of the kids would try to get my attention, they'd say, hey, dad, hey, dad, watch me, watch me. And hopefully they weren't jumping off the roof or they weren't going to do something that would cause them injury. But that watch me, dad, is that not a plea for, from the child to his father or her father that they're asking you to give them your full attention, whether it could be catching a ball, it could be diving off a diving board, that, that they want you to give them their full attention, your full attention. That attention from a father is so important to them because they know that we're busy. They know that we're often distracted. 
They know that our lives, that we have many other things we have to do in this life besides just stop and watch them. And they just want, at least for that moment, for us to truly see them and to focus on them. And seeing them in action, they will believe that we will appreciate them anymore. So when he says, Dad, watch us, we need to stop and take that moment. It's a a sacred moment in the life of your child when they say, Dad, watch me. Uh, it's It's a moment not to miss. They want us to watch them, and we want them to watch us. That's why Paul says, so I urge you to imitate me. And then verse 17, Paul continues and says, you know what? I can't come see you right now. I've got a great work going on in Ephesus. Yes, it's extremely difficult. Yes, I'm under a great deal of pressure, but the Lord's opening up all these opportunities and the whole province of Asia is going to hear the gospel by the time Paul was done with that portion of his ministry. And so Paul says, I can't come to see you right now, but I'm going to send you one of the best that I have. I'm going to send you my spiritual son in the faith. He says, that's why I have sent Timothy. Maybe Timothy was the, was the young man who brought them the letter of 1 Corinthians. That's why I have sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of how I follow Christ Jesus, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. And so... Paul wanted to uh, remind them of watching him and imitating his faith. Well, who could I send who already does that? Who could I send in my stead who's already following me in the footsteps of faith? And so Paul could think of no other person more important and whom he'd have more confidence in than this young man, Timothy. Timothy, who met Paul probably when he was a teenager in the first missionary journey when Paul was with Barnabas. Timothy, who when he was a teenager became circumcised and he joined Paul and his missionary team. And from that point on, he stayed with Paul and the missionary team, eventually becoming pastor in the big city of Ephesus. He kept telling Timothy as well, Timothy, imitate my way of life. And the more that Timothy imitated Paul, the greater leader and the better Christ follower Timothy began, the more influential Timothy um, grew in the kingdom of God. Paul sent his best. Paul sent his spiritual son in the faith because he said, watch me, imitate me, imitate my way of life. And I'm sending Timothy to show you how to do it. Wow, that's That's a pretty good legacy. Do you want to know what the Christian life is like? Do you want to know how to follow Jesus? Well, I'm going to send you my son. I'm going to send you my daughter. I'm going to send you somebody who who I've raised in my sphere of influence, and now I feel that they've grown so much that they can say whatever they say is what I would say if I were in their place. That's a lot of confidence that Paul could have in a young man like Timothy. That's a lot of work and life that Paul had poured in to this young man so he could get to that place of influence. Now, this is on your bulletin. How can you be a great dad? We've talked about 1 Corinthians 4. We talked about Paul saying, I'm not the owner of the gospel. I'm not the owner of the church. I don't run the show. I am a servant of Christ for your benefit. And the faithfulness that I need to show is to my master because I serve the same master, Jesus, that you all do. How can you be a great dad? Number one, love their mother. If you're still married to their mother, how can you be a great dad? One of the best ways you can love, you can show your kids to say, therefore, imitate my way of life. Watch me and how I live life. One of the best things you can do as a man for your kids is to love their mother. 
For your daughters, when you show them uh, that love for their mother, you love her, you're kind, you are here to stay, you're not going to go away, you're not going to exploit or abuse that woman. And in this hashtag Me Too culture that we are living in now, to properly love a woman, to respect her, to treat her the way that she deserves, and to not use her or abuse her for your own sake, that is a huge statement uh, of example to be the kind of man that that woman, that young woman growing up can look up to so that when that woman becomes an adult and she looks around for a man to marry, she's going to have a standard of character that she's going to say, if this young man doesn't match the character of that man that I love and respect, the father that I grew up in his home, then I'm not going to stick around with a guy like that. So love their mother. And then for sons, um, show them what it's like to treat a woman with love and respect. Show them what it's like to sacrifice. Show them what it's like to do without for the good of somebody else. Show them what it's like to have a proper marriage relationship, both for sons and daughters. Love their mother. And then number two, how to be a great dad. Number two, be a model worth imitating. If you say imitate me in my life, what are, what are you asking them to imitate? Yeah, it could be good money management. It could be a hard work ethic. It could be paying attention and, and being respectful to authority, whether it's the teachers in their school or the police officers or, or whoever else is in authority, eventually even the IRS. Yes, we are to be respectful of them too. Um, number two, be a model worth imitating. But even more than all those other ways to model a, a good character is model what it's like to follow Jesus. Trusting in Christ is your forgiver and leader. And yes, I did, under, I did underscore leader because I wanted to remind you and me that, that it's not just about accepting Christ as your Savior and then going on and live your life and then just waiting to die so you can go to heaven. No, we follow Christ as our forgiver and leader because he continually forgives us of our sins, but he also guides us and says, this is the way I want you to go. These are the people that I want you to reach. This is the kind of ministry I want you to invest your life in because you can be a difference maker in this world if you will follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So following Christ as our leader is what is a model worth imitating. Reading God's word daily and praying, seeking first God's kingdom. So two, two ways that we can be a great dad. Number three, this is, where the, the, this is where the idea of sacrifice comes in. Number three, be willing to go, go without for the sake of your family. What are you sacrificing for your family's good? This is a, a simple thing. It's not even that great. I don't even consider it that sacrificial, but I do remember it because I remember making a decision that I had to change the way I was doing things. When we got back from Chile, we're in Northern California, living in the Sacramento area, and coming into that culture of my brothers-in-law and my father-in-law, they all played golf. They all played golf. They loved to play golf. They had competitions. They had this little gold medallion that they used to you know, pair off and have teams of two versus the other teams of two, and they take their total score, and whoever had the lowest score won the medallion. And oh, there was bragging rights about who had the medallion. And I grew up in that. And I remember I, I went to secondhand sport or played against sports, and I bought this you know, cheapo golf set, and I got out there and I started playing golf with them. And 
Uh, somewhere in the first couple of years of doing that, it remi- I was reminded, I said, you know what? Uh, a dad is going to have to sacrifice some things for the good of their children. And what I determined as, that as a 30-something, that if I was going to spend that much time on the golf course and that much money playing golf, I really was pulling away uh, on the weekends time that I should be spending with my kids and with my family. And while they were in the home, it was like, you know what, I can't, I can't focus on, I can't, I can't do this to the level that you guys are doing this. So I had to back away. And that was just, it was one little example. It did, I don't know if it changed the world, but I think it was for my own family's good because now I'm an empty nester and I can play golf all the time. <laughs> and as a pastor, I only work one day a week anyway. So, <laughs> all right, there, I said it for you. All right. I know what you're thinking. So question, what are you sacrificing? What are you willing to go without for your family's good? Because that's, that goes to the, willing that you're, to, the, to the degree that we're willing to go without is to the degree that we go from being a, an okay dad to a good dad to a great dad. What are we willing to give up for our own family's good? And then finally, number four, we are raising up our kids. We're raising kids today, but they're, we're not raising them to be kids forever. So don't be a helicopter parent. And don't be the kind of parent that, you know, where the kids never grow up, where they become an adolescent from the time they're 18 until they're 47. You know, whatever that, whatever that means. We're responsible. We're teaching our kids to be responsible. We're preparing them one day. You know, the Bible talks about parents Having kids is quivers of arrows, you know, whoever has a quiver of arrows, meaning whoever has a lot of kids, that's like a blessing for a dad. And with that, that illustration of the arrow, what that means is at some point when that child grows and becomes sort of independent and leaves the nest and leaves the home, you're taking that arrow and you're, you're, you're taking your bow as a father and you're pulling back the string on that bow and that, that arrow is going to be launched out into the world. And the question is, what is being launched out into the world? Are they responsible? Are they respectful of authority? Are they willing to work hard? Are they prepared to be on their own? Because we're not just raising kids, we are raising adults. And here's the other thing I want to say. We told our kids this all the time. It says, yes, right now uh, you have mom and dad in the home. And you are dependent on us, and we provide for you, and you don't do without because we work and, and we're able to do those kind of things. But at some, re, at some point, you're going to be able to leave this house, you're going to come from under our direct authority, and you're going to be out on your own. But the point is, when you go out on your own, we're not asking you to go out on your own and be completely independent. And saying, I don't have any boss. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. We're not asking you to do that. Because if you're a Christ follower, you're eventually, you're going to shift your dependence from us as mom and dad. And you're going to put your dependence over to God himself. And you're going to say, Lord, you're the Lord of my life. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. And you're going to take care of me. I'm going to depend on you rather than depending on mom and dad. And if we do that successfully... They, we've taken the baton of our faith and we have successfully passed it off to our kids. And now they're taking that baton of the Christian faith and they're loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're loving their neighbor as themselves. They are now saying the great commission is for me. 
to go and make disciples and be a difference maker in my generation. And to the degree that we model that and communicate that, those are the kind of arrows that we want to send out into the world. Raise them to be adults. Look what it says here. God, God had this in mind all along for parents. In Psalm 78, he says, For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel, talking about God. God commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. Okay? Teach God's laws to your kids. Why? So the next generation might know them even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. So, and then what happens when all that happens? Oh, we keep passing along our faith to the next generation successfully, and they adopt our Christian faith. They, they imitate us as we were imitating Christ. So they in turn will teach their own children. Quote in verse seven, so each generation should set its hope anew on God. Each new generation, even Gen Z in the 21st century, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Because for us, you know, we're going to be leaving this world someday and they need to carry on the faith in our, in our stead. Billy Graham said it right. He said the Christian faith is always only one generation away from extinction. And we don't want to be that last generation. When you're raising a child, you are raising the future. Now, when we do our job right, good things happen. The world changes. Everybody around us is blessed. Uh, in, and this was about 21 years ago. I was privileged to be one of the million Christian men who were able to go to Washington, D.C. on October 4th for this solemn day of fasting and assembly uh, hosted by Promise Keepers. And one of the speakers that day was the man I referenced earlier, Pastor Tony Evans uh, from Dallas, Texas. And this is what he said at that event. Listen to me, men. The story of a nation is the story of its families written large. And if we want to see these things change out here, we've got to start in our home. A messed up man will produce a messed up family that will produce a messed up church that will result in a messed up neighborhood that will cause a messed up city that will bring about a messed up county that will result in a messed up state that will reside in a messed up country that will bring about a messed up world. So if we want better worlds composed of better countries inhabited by better states made up of better counties that are composed of better cities inhabited by better neighborhoods illumined by better churches made up of better families, we better go home better men. It starts with our own commitment to be men of God. That's where it starts, a commitment to understand and recognize the importance of the family. Secondly, you must request forgiveness of your family. When you go home and you gather your family around in a family altar and without going through all the gory details, you simply say, I'm sorry. I've been a bad leader. I've been an inconsistent leader. I've been a, I, I've been a failure as a leader. But from today, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's right. Quoting Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's the good news because it's never too late for a dad to do better. You're only a prayer and a commitment away from getting back on the right track, and you're only a phone call away or maybe a good talk away with your kids or with your grandkids from turning all those things around. So dad, I just, dad, I just want to encourage you, be courageous 
Have that needed conversation because a better dad changes the world, changes everything. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for being our Father in heaven. Thank you for modeling us what it's like to be a good Father, for providing for us, for blessing us, for protecting us, for guiding our lives, Lord, for stopping us in our tracks and turning us around when we needed to be rebuked and corrected. And Lord, in your kingdom economy, as dads and fathers, you've made us leaders in our homes. And Lord, we know that you want us to raise up a new generation of kids who grow up to be committed followers of Christ. So Lord, help us to model the kind of life that you love and the kind of life who follows first your teachings as our authority. And so even though we're not perfect, Lord, our kids can see us even through the inconsistency and they can still say overall, there is a person, there is a person worth following, worth imitating their faith. God, help us. Help to show them how to live for your honor and glory. And this morning, while our eyes are still closed and our heads are bowed, I just I just want to ask you, are you at a place in your life where you're ready to turn toward Jesus and for wherever you were up until today, you're ready to become a fully devoted Christ follower? Because we know that God wants to be your heavenly father. He wants to lift you out of sin and death. He wants to forgive you and give you new life. He's offering that to you. In his son Jesus, that's why he sent Jesus to come and rescue us, because he loves you, and he would do anything not to spend eternity without you. So I just want to ask you this question, is today going to be your day? Will this be the day that you humbly bow before God and you commit your life to follow him? Or maybe it's a day when you're coming back to him, where maybe you've strayed, like it says, all sheep have gone astray. Maybe you've drifted from God, and now it's time to turn around and fully follow him with all your heart. Are you ready to commit your life to him? If so, then I invite you to pray this prayer along with me. Just pray it in your heart, and if you mean it, God will hear and answer this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I am ready to follow you today with all of my heart. No holding back. Lord, please come into my life. Forgive me of all my sins, all the wrong things that I've ever done. And Lord, start me today on this new journey in relationship with you. Show me the path to eternal life and the blessed life that is involved when I follow you with all of my heart. Lord, I love you and thank you for loving me first. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.